Yo, what's going on, guys? Uh, this is a special bonus episode uh, that I recently recorded uh, interviewing Dr. John Kilborn, the first ever fitness and strength coach uh, in the NBA uh, with the Philadelphia 76ers. He worked personally with Moses Malone, Dr. Julius Irving, as well as incorporating his own method of dance into everything he does in his life. And it's a tremendous interview, and the man is just full of stories. And it was an awesome thing to do. I got to do it for one of my school projects, um, for one of my classes this summer. And I think it's just a cool interview that I think everybody should listen to. So check out this interview with Professor Dr. John Kilborn, the first ever fitness and strength conditioning coach in the NBA for the Philadelphia 76ers. Enjoy, guys. Good morning, Professor Dr. John Kilborn. How are you? Good morning, Nico. It's great <laughs> to be with you. Yes, thank you so much for joining. This is this has been a, a really exciting opportunity for me, and I can, and I can't wait to chat with you. Uh, you are reporting live to us from your home in the Upper Peninsula. Where are you at right now? We're on Bois Blanc Island in Lake Huron. We have a home there. Yes, and. The GV magazine did an article about you guys last summer, uh, kind of just pinpointing all of the stuff that you guys have done on that island. And I think the craziest part about it was that your initial trip, you were going to Mackinac Island, right? And you saw yeah. this other island kind of just there with nothing really on it. And you were just kind of curious. You were like, what's, what's on this island? And you went out and you camped basically for 10, 12 years. And then you built essentially a home and a getaway. Yeah. And yeah, it's been pretty, it's been the most uh, constant of our family. I mean, this is our 32nd year, I think. And we initially bought 150 feet on Lake Huron and expanded that to 250 feet. So we now have four acres right on the east side of the island. And we have a family home that we built pretty much everything ourselves. We have a boathouse. We have a, <laughs> a tractor house. A so studio a tiny house. home. Yeah, and that's how GV Magazine, uh, Traverse City Magazine, did a little piece on our tiny house. And the people at the university saw that, so they asked if they could come up and sort of document what we've done, which was really special. Their story means a lot to us. Oh, it's, it's an incredible piece. And I, I really enjoyed uh, what your wife said in the, in the video about how just important it is to have a little getaway around nature and surrounding yourself around nature. How important is that for you to have kind of this little escape and getaway around this beautiful nature? Well, I, I think it's just, I mean, every day it gets more important, especially as we're all dealing with this terrible pandemic. You know, we are very safe up here. Yes. Very, very safe. And that's, that's a real plus. But I, I was just reading today in the, in the newspaper that one silver lining of the pandemic is that more people are actually going outside and they can't 
keep kayaks and bicycles and tents, you know, they're all being sold out. And in the article, they listed that over the last 10 years, only 20% of Americans actually find time to be in nature once a week. Wow. And um, so if there's anything that might be good about this, which I, there can't be too much, um, it's so devastating, but is that more people are getting outside. And in fact, in the fall, I have been lobbying the university really hard to teach my courses out of doors because yep. it's the most safe place we can be. And during the pandemic of the flu pandemic in 1918, they actually taught children out of outdoors and it was very successful. So at first the university was a bit hesitant, but they've opened their eyes a little bit and I, <laughs> I'm going to uh, actually, when I can, I'm going to have my classes outside. Oh, that's incredible. That's a great idea. And I think, I think that would help out just like, like we said about just being around nature. I think everyone would be in a better mood and would be better, more comfortable and more excited, I think, to come to class if they knew that how they were learning was the safest way they were learning. So that's, that's a really good uh, idea. And they, what, what I've, I think they're, I know I teach one class in the Honors College and they're actually purchasing a 40 by 40 tent oh. to go in outside Niemeyer at the university. But I, you know, right now my classes are scheduled to be staggered hybrid, which is meeting half of them on Monday and half on Wednesday. And the half that's not there would live stream that. But by being outside, I can meet them all at once. And I'm going to ask each of them to bring from home, which I'm sure they all have, uh, fold up like soccer athletic chair uh -huh. so that they would carry like a yoga mat. Yep. And, and then the university doesn't have to clean or sanitize. And, you know, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. <laughs> Absolutely. I like that. I like that. You've you've always been kind of an innovator in the classroom. I remember when taking you for uh, Movement 101, you always were talking about uh, changing up the classrooms and, and wanting to, to be different. Do you still want, I think you said you wanted to get like the roller chairs or put balls in the classrooms. Yeah, so we, yeah we, we've done that. We're, which, uh, were you in, it's called the activity permissible classroom. Were you in that one with the no chairs and no, I was in the standard just desk and chair class. I know, I know. <laughs> but yeah, I remember just every, I think I, I had you at 8.30 in the morning. And for some students, that's, you know, they avoid the morning class as much as they can. And <laughs> I remember every single morning coming into your class, you were a lightning bolt, just a pure lightning bolt of energy. Okay. And and I, it's so difficult because, you know, us students, a lot of us are, you know, taking 15 to 18 credits and we're tired. We have other classes, other projects, but you always made it a, a goal in class to, to be awake and to have everybody somehow participating, whether it was just active listening or, you know, raising your hand and interacting in the class with some way. Uh, I think it, you've always been really good at just bringing the energy uh, out of every student in your classroom. Well, thank you. Absolutely. Try. Yes. Well, you have to. You have to because some of some of these students, including myself, we're just kind of dark. <laughs> just you know, just we're all just going through some stuff. And going to your class was always kind of a, a fun, creative escape. So it, it was Thank great. You. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I want to talk to you because uh, I mean, having you, 
you just had story after story. And I remember you bringing in all the old uh, basketball shoes that you had, the original Converse that you had uh, back in the NBA in the 80s. What was it like and how did the conversation come about when you were approached to join the 76ers as a strength and fitness coach? Well, you know, I, I was Coach Larry Brown, the legendary basketball coach, uh, Hall of Fame coach. I was his graduate assistant at UCLA doing my master's degree in the Department of Dance, but focusing on dance and conditioning, dance and sport. And bless his heart, he gave me an opportunity to work with his team. And this was 1979, 80. And <laughs> we, at, the, at that time, there were 48 teams that were invited to the March Madness, to the tournament. We were the 47th seed, so the second to the last team selected. And we lost in the final game at the final four in Indianapolis to Louisville. Wow. And we had, you know, and I, I, this is just anecdotal. I didn't keep data on it, but we had very few injuries. Um, during my time there. So I was with him for two years. And of course, when you're, you know, when you're doing what I was doing, your goal is to try to get to the NBA. And so I, because Larry had come from the Denver Nuggets to UCLA, a, a pro team, you know, he knew all the, 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 the network. Mm -hmm. And so in Los Angeles, um, I went and volunteered my services to the NBA Summer Pro League. There are about 12 teams there. And they bring in their rookies and some veterans that need work in the summer. And I drove around and just gave away free samples. I was like the, you know, I was taking time off work. I wasn't getting paid for it. I was like the fuller brush salesperson <laughs> for conditioning. And then as a result, you know, the players loved it. They loved, they'd never done anything like this before. And it was all done to music and then I started getting offers to go work with teams for, you know, a week, seven to 10 days. And in the fall of 82, I had worked, I was in Phoenix for a week. This was before camp started. Uh, and then I was in Philadelphia for a week. And then I was uh, going to New Jersey where Coach Brown was now the head coach of the Nets. And when I got to Philadelphia, I was there a week with Dr. J and, you know, all the great players, Andrew, Tony, Mo Cheeks, Moses Malone. This was before camp. And then I went on. I was only there a week and I was making $150 a day. Wow. Which is <laughs> plus a hotel and, a, you know, meals and things. And then I went on to work with Coach Brown at the Nets during official camp. And my first day there, I got a call. We had two-a-days, and we had our morning practice, and then we had lunch. I got a call when I was in my hotel room from the Sixers that they had practiced that morning, and they wondered where I was. They really missed my work. Would I come back? And they said they would pay me twice, $300 a day. Wow. And I said, um, you know, there's just no way I can – I can do that to Coach Brown. He, you know, was my, I mean, he's the one that opened this door. I said, the only way that I could, would come back would be if you offered me a full-time job. So they said, stay in your hotel room. We're going to go talk to the owner. And so they went and talked to Harold Katz, who owned the Sixers at that time, and came back in about an hour and said, 
we'll hire you full time. Wow. So then I went, Coach Brown and the assistant coaches were having lunch at the hotel. So I had to walk in and say, Coach, I, I just got an offer from the Sixers for a full time job. And, and he said, you've got to go. He said, I, he tried to get me hired by the Nets, but they wouldn't, the owner wouldn't do it, the management. So he said, this, you know, this is your chance. You've got to go. So I, the Sixers said, you know, find a rental car and be here by, they had practice that evening, which was about an hour and a half drive from Princeton where we were. So I rented a car and was there and was at practice that night and then was with them. You know, we won the championship that year. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the craziest part is that there was really only one year where you guys needed to work together because you guys were champions by the end of it. Well, I was with them, you know, 82, 83, and 84. Yes. But I mean, it was just, and we had, we, they do keep, it's called player games lost due to injury. The Sixers had their lowest on record. And that, that was actually noted in USA Today. And again, I, I know in my soul, having been studied dance and dance, you know, professionally and taught, that what I did really did help. Um, and so... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it started, it started the, the, the strength and fitness coach necessity in the NBA. I mean, now you see all these athletes who are constantly getting hurt and constantly out for seasons. And it's, uh, it's interesting how much that's developed since you started. Now, with you, I remember you telling us in class that, I mean, like you said, you had Dr. J, you had Moses Malone, you had Mo Cheeks, biggest players of the era in the NBA as well as of all time were they difficult to get to buy into what you were doing because I remember you saying you would change the the pull down bars in the gym to basketballs and you would help like train them to everything they were doing in the weight room was for the court yeah fit for what yeah well at, at yes at first they were a bit apprehensive I mean especially when I started at UCLA you know they I had, I went through a lot, <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, they enjoyed it. They enjoyed the music. They enjoyed the camaraderie. And fortunately, I think the main reason I was hired by the Sixers was because of Julius Irving, Dr. J. He loved what I did. And when you watch the Howard Cosell interview he did, you know, Julius says that. that it, yeah, he does. He's like, I've never felt this good. And you said, and, and and they were saying how it would just add even maybe just an extra two years to his career. And he, you know, I think being the leader and of the team and then having Moses, that was his first year. You know, it, it really, I mean, it helped so much to have him. And he's still a very good friend of mine. That's incredible. That's... But if I could just say, I know a lot of students will probably listen to this. Networking is so important. You know, when people, students ask me, you know, they want to follow this path that I was on. And it's just so important, you know, to do the, vol I mean, I did so much volunteering. And, um, you know, I wasn't paid uh, at first by UCLA. But after a few weeks, you know, Coach Brown saw the value in this and he, was able to create a graduate assistant position for me there. Yeah, that's incredible. And yeah, I mean, in the past three episodes, I've overstressed the, the idea of networking about who you know and who knows you. And I think with this story, I mean, like you said, you, you were fortunate enough to have someone create a position for you and then you kind of just ran with it and, and you, 
like you said, Larry Brown took you to the Nets and through that you got to the Sixers and then everything after that, you were an NBA champion, which is just so crazy to, to think about. And now, you know, most teams, when we were back, uh, bless his heart, you know, Moses died suddenly of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And not this last year, but the year before, they retired his jersey, so they brought us all back. And I just could not believe the Sixer organization. I mean, there were, when I was with them, there were 25 people in the front office and four coach, three coaches, the trainer, and myself. Now the Sixers organization is 260 people. Wow. They have four full-time strength coaches. Most players have their own personal fitness coaches. And it's just amazing. I mean, the, the Sixers have their own restaurant with a chef there 24 hours a day. The so players can come in and order whatever they want pretty much any time of the day. It's a whole different ball game. And to think that, you know, in 1982, I, I remember when I was at UCLA, they didn't even have a football strength coach. Jeez. And I was asked to be on the search committee to hire the very first strength and conditioning coach for UCLA football in 1982. Wow. That's incredible. That's awesome. That's that. I didn't know that. That's so yeah. interesting. That's so interesting. It's crazy to see how, how far it's all come and how, talk to me about going back to the Sixers for that 30 year reunion when they honored the team. Was it a great opportunity to see everybody? Were you, did you connect with, uh, were you always close with them? Or was that kind of like the first time you were able to reconnect with some of the guys? Uh, I stay in touch with them, you know, as best we can. It, uh, it's always special to come back because more than the ring and uh, all those things, what I remember most is just the fun we had as a team, you know, on the road trips, going out to eat after practice, you know, uh, just the fun and games we played at practice. Those are the things that are so special. And when we went back for the tribute to Moses, you know, here are all of these grown men, you know, with tears in their eyes, just because none of us would have a ring if it wasn't for Moses. Right. Right. Absolutely. Probably the greatest, one of the greatest centers to ever play the game. He was a brute. So we, uh, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain bond there. And I don't know if those, I hope they can, but with the current league and the money and the entourages and et cetera, I, I don't know if that exists anymore. You know, the, I mean, when we flew, we flew commercial when I traveled with them and we practiced, you know, we flew on commercial, the, they, the starting players all got seats in first class. Everybody else was in coach. We carried our own bags from the baggage claim you know, it was just unheard now, of stuff now. Yeah, unheard you know, of such stuff a thing. Now. They fly on these retrofitted, you know, jets. And- <laughs> yeah, it's it's now. I feel like the NBA is such a. Uh, it's more of a players ran league. It's a very player centric league. Every player, like you said, has their own coach, their own conditioning coach, all that. Back in the day, when you were coaching, would you say it was more of a team league? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I think that's a, uh, I mean, that's one reason we won. We played, I mean, that team played so well. To, and you look at the teams back in the 80s, you know, the great teams, the Lakers, the Celtics, you know, the Sixers. I mean, they were real 
team oriented uh, yeah. organizations. And I think those that win now still have to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Who, when you were on the Sixers, what was the team you guys hated playing or the, the most competitive games? Oh, I think the rivalry with the Celtics was pretty intense. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. And the rivalry also with the Milwaukee Bucks and their coach, Don Nelson, you know. <laughs> just, so, just always a battle. Always was, a battle. Pretty much. That's awesome. I mean, when we went to play in the, in the garden, the real garden. Yes. You know, they, they would turn off the hot water in our lock in the visiting locker room. So the players couldn't take showers after the game. They had to go back to the hotel to take a shower. What? I mean, they did all kinds of. It was a whole different league back then. They they put our radio and TV announcers announcers in obstructed view seats. (laughs) That's hilarious. They were doing everything to mess with you guys. That's, that's so interesting. I read a, I was reading a little snippet and I want to just confirm it with you. Uh, is it true that the ring, the championship ring has uh faux fee faux on it? Faux five faux. Faux five faux. What does that mean? When we, I, I actually was with him when he said this, we were at practice before we started the playoffs in 1983 and we had the best record in the East so we got to buy the first round. So we had to play three seven-game series. And a writer named George Shirk, who's no longer with us, from the Philadelphia Daily News, asked Moses. We were walking to our cars, and I happened to be, I was very close with Moses. And George said to Moses, what, Moses, what, what do you think the Sixers' chances are in the playoffs? And Moses said, foe, foe, foe. And he got into it. He had a big SUV. He got into it and drove, rolled up the window, drove away. <laughs> Meaning that if we, with three seven-game series, if we won four games in each series, we would be the champions. And we swept the Knicks in four. We lost one to the Milwaukee Bucks, and we swept the Lakers in four. <laughs> so on the side of our rings, it's engraved faux five faux. And there's actually, your, your audience can look it up, there's a song that, Pieces of a Dream, a jazz group did in 1983 after we won the championship called Faux Five Faux that tells the story of the Sixers championship season. That's incredible. That's, that's such a cool story to have. And it's crazy that you were with him when he said it. So that's, that's, that's just something I wanted to ask you. Cause I was like, what does that mean? That's just championship rings are always, there's always some type of team message in them, especially now with like the Nationals, when the MLB team, when they just won, they had an inside kind of joke on their ring. So it's always interesting to find out the history of them. Um, I want to move on from the NBA because I read that you, is it true that you worked with figure skaters too? Yeah. I, um, during the off season, I had an opportunity to teach dance to figure skaters. And so I was one of the early pioneers in incorporating dance training with skaters. I mean, it was very popular in the Eastern Bloc countries, but not so much so in the United States. And I, the Skating Club of Wilmington happened to be just across the bridge from Philadelphia. So during my downtime in the summer, I taught dance. And it was interesting because in 1984 at the Winter Games Olympics, 
in Sarajevo, Yugoslavia, eight of the United States figure skating to eight members of them, two dance teams, two pairs team, I had actually worked with. So I had, and Peter and Kitty Carruthers actually won a medal at those games in pair skating. Wow. So I had, you know, that was also, and I think it was because of my work with the Sixers that I was able to do that. And also my first year with the Sixers, I was able to find the time. I taught at the Philadelphia College of Performing Arts. I taught a dance class and actually choreographed a piece on their dancers there. So I tried to keep my dance life still active. Yeah, that's that's so cool. That's so cool. That's and again, that just comes from from networking kind of, right? Absolutely. Everything is just tied in. It's just you got one opportunity and just kept leading you to others and expanding your boundaries and uh, being uncomfortable, maybe doing something that you're not used to doing. And again, it's just another lesson for anyone listening that it's just like, just because you're tied down to one place doesn't mean you can't do anything else. To add to that, um, after after my job was no longer with the Sixers, I was invited to Detroit to work at the Detroit Skating Club because they knew of my work in Wilmington, Delaware. And I moved to Detroit and started dancing professionally again with a company called the Detroit Dance Collective, which is where I met my wife. And we have been married 32 years on (laughs) Thursday. Wow, this Thursday? Yeah. That's incredible. Congratulations. Congratulations. I want to talk to you about um, your interest with the traditional games of the Inuit people, as well as Arctic games. And you have a, um, a necklace on, right? That you've always, that you've always worn. I remember you wearing it every day in class. Can you just briefly kind of give a backstory on the necklace and your interest and involvement in the Inuit people? The, when I think you probably read about this in running with Zoe, but during the Sixers championship parade, there were a million five hundred thousand people on Broad Street. You know, I'd never experienced anything like that. I mean, when the Cubs won the World Series, there were five million people in Chicago. Jeez. And I, during the Sixers parade, I, I remember asking myself, you know, what is it about games that does this? And so after I finished my doctorate, which is in history and philosophy of play games and sport from Ohio State, My first teaching position was at Bridgewater State University uh, near Boston. And they had a very prominent Canadian studies program. And I I sort of realized that if I want to know what it is that is so powerful about games today, I need to go back in time. I need to look at what were the origins of our games and play. And so the Inuit, of the Eastern Arctic of Canada and Greenland and, you know, uh, Alaska, they're still practicing some of their early games. So I just started, I started to focus my research pretty much on that, on looking at what are the philosophies and histories behind their games. And it's been such an incredible journey. We lived with all four of us, our two kids and Elizabeth and I lived with the Inuit in 2001 on a sabbatical. And then in 2011, I lived with the Sami of Scandinavia and went back to live with them in 2018. And what I am, I know I don't have all the answers, but what I'm uncovering is that, you know, the games were, they've always been a mirror of who we are. 
and they were a rehearsal for the skills you needed to survive in the world. And I don't know if you want to hear this, but what's really interesting about my work now is with climate change, the Arctic is, is warming up and you've got 25% of the world's resources in the Arctic. You've got eight Arctic nations all scrambling for them and, and Russia's being very aggressive. Mm -hmm. So my research now is looking at lessons from early games that can help them mediate some of this conflict because it was the games that they played that helped them learn how to get, learn how to get along. You know, if you, you played a game, typically you wouldn't kill your opponent if you lost, you know, you, right. you accepted your loss and you played again. So how do we use those lessons to help us in the modern world, you know, deal with this, you know, find sustainability and peace? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was always so interested and fascinated about your, your pursuit of that. And is there anything, you know, I mean, we talked about everything that you've done thus far. Is there anything, I mean, you just said you were working with them about climate change and everything. Is there anything else that you were looking to like accomplish? Anything that you're trying, anything else that you're trying to kind of, or anything that you're working on right now? Mainly my, my focus is on the Sami. I'm one, if you Google early traditional Inuit games, you'll come to hundreds of sources, journal articles, videos. If you try, if you look up early Sami games, um, you know, the ind indigenous people of Europe, you will find only a handful and I'm one of them. So I'm really fascinating, fascinated about that, you know, trying to uncover that. This next year, I'm going on phased retirement, so I will only be teaching in the fall. And in the winter, I was scheduled to teach in Sweden, in northern Sweden, in a Sami program at Umeå University. Wow. But with the pandemic, that may be put on hold for a while. Yeah, that's absolutely. Well, congratulations. I mean, I know you, how long have you been at Grand Valley? This will be my 17th year there. Incredible. Incre how, how much has Grand Valley changed since you started? Oh <laughs> <laughs> just, just the entire university. But our department, when I started, I think there were maybe 10 or 12 faculty. Jeez. Now there were 40. We have 40. Wow. One of the largest departments at the university, especially exercise science. Yeah, and I want to get into exercise science. Uh, like I said earlier, I had you for a class, which was Movement 101. Um, can you give kind of a brief gist about what uh, you mainly focus on in that class? Well, it's the, the class, I mean, it's, it's designed to be the history and philosophy, basically, of the body moving over time, whether it be play, game, sport, physical activity, physical fitness, and what I love about it is that, it, you know, we have, all of, we have all the majors. We have athletic training, exercise science, sport management, and physical education teaching. So it's where we find those common denominators, which if you boil it down is really movement. You know, that's what we all have in common, a love for moving. You know, what do we have in common and help, how can we help each other move forward? Um, I love, I mean, that's been my, the class I've taught for a long time. You know, this will be my total. I think this will be my 37th year teaching in higher ed. Wow. Much of that early on was teaching dance. Um, 
but for the last, I was at Bridgewater 10 years and now 17 here. And then I taught a similar course at The Ohio State University as a graduate teaching assistant. So 20, this will be my 31st year teaching mostly this content. Wow, that's, in, that's awesome. How? I, I want one other thing. I love meeting students like you. And <laughs> You would be amazed at how many emails I get from students like you and others who have, you know, moved on and are doing great things. And if I had any, even a tiny little voice in that, it's, it's just been so rewarding. Absolutely. I mean, you do. I mean, I, I personally, I mean, wanting to work in professional sports, I remember just listening to um, your accomplishments and even now talking to you. Uh, yeah, you you have had a hand in it, and your stories and your guidance has has been very helpful, and I appreciate that tremendously. So thank, thank you. Me. Now, before we before we start to wrap up and stuff, how how important is sport in the middle of this pandemic? It's games and sport have always been important there. And as I said earlier, they're always a mirror of a time and place. You can go back and look at Rome, Greece, any period of history. And the games people play are a mirror of what's happening at that time. I mean, baseball is another good example. You know, it emerged together with the Industrial Revolution. Um, and right now, you know, this is a very serious time. And you can, I mean, I... I'm happy that the NBA bubble, and I just heard on the news this morning, the hockey bubble, you know, are, are pretty successful. But one thing about sports is it's, you know, there are people, there are spectators, and I, I miss that. Absolutely. Seeing that. Um, but we'll get through it. You know, we, we, we will get through it. I am encouraged that more people are being out of doors and are engaging, uh, maybe not being spectators so much of the time but actually finding time for themselves to engage in physical activity. Because one thing the pandemic has told us is that we are a nation that's just really out of shape. <laughs> yeah. You know, many of the people that are dying from this have underlying health conditions, including overweight and obesity. And if there's one thing we need to do is, is get a handle on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I completely agree. It's been, it's been nice to see the NBA back on TV. It's been nice to see NHL, but the spectator aspect of it, they're doing the best they can to incorporate uh, as many people as they can in these games. But I do miss the, the roar of the crowd, the, the intensity of the crowd. Um, but like you said, it's something that we have to adapt to and we'll get through it as a, as a society. We always do get through these tough times and, I think it's... No, I, I, I know her personally, and I, she had a wonderful piece in the Post last week, Sally Jenkins, on that we just, you know, we would be much better off had we done our homework and practiced, you know, the mask wearing, the physical distancing, those type of things, just like you practice in sport. You know, we would, she would mention the countries that they are going back with spectators, and the difference is that they, they did their homework, they practiced. Right. And if there are lessons from sport is that's why you practice. Right. You know, to, to Absol that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I wish everyone kind of took more of the sport uh, approach to it. Um, talk to me about running with Zoe. I know it's something that in movement 101, it was an assignment. We had to read it. We had to 
uh, interact with the book. What is Running with Zoe for people who don't know? Well, it's, it's called Running with Zoe, a conversation on the meanings of play, games, and sport, including a journey to the Canadian Arctic. It's just basically a conversation, uh, and it, it was, came out in 2009-10, on my journey, on my, you know, it's a conversation on my progress um, up until that point, and I'm getting ready to, to try to expand it because of what I've done in the last, you know, 10 years, or what I've learned and experienced. But it's, it's basically stories of, you know, my life. And I, I think that's, I can say it, one thing that makes a good professor is that you have experience and you have stories to share. You know, you can have all the data you want, but if you don't have the stories, the personal side behind it, to relate to the students, you know, it, it doesn't have the same meaning. And I've been blessed to, you know, to have firsthand experience. And that's another important, you know, get that first-hand experience as best you can, you know, volunteer early, you know, job shadow, uh, et cetera. Absolutely. And yeah, I think for any student that, that listens to this as well as faculty, it's, it's just, uh, you know, continuing to look for those opportunities and don't think that one will come to you. And, exactly. and there's so many opportunities in sport, unfortunately not now with the world being shut down, but once everything starts to pick back up, uh, like you said, volunteering and, and getting in contact with people, uh, what, what do you think if you, I mean, I know you've kind of touched on it throughout the entire episode with pieces of advice, but if there's anything that you could have told yourself back in college when you were a grad assistant looking back, what would you tell your college freshman self? Want um, to follow your passion, you know, I, as a dance, as a male dancer coming up in the 70s and 80s, you know, I dealt with a lot of stereotypes, even from my, and a lot of, oh, I would say non-encouragement, even from my family. You know, I would just, if you believe in something, follow it, work hard, you know, get to know your professors, uh, network as best you can. Um, I think that's, those have been the really important lessons and, and take risks, you know, yeah. <laughs> be afraid of when I stepped on the court at UCLA, my first day, I actually wore ballet tights and a leotard and ballet slippers. If you wow. players eyes, <laughs> I can't, he, this is our coach. <laughs> I can't imagine some of their eyes lit up like, Oh, I don't want to be at practice today. What's going on. And then the second day when I didn't know if I'd be invited back, but Coach Brown, you know, said, let's try it. But when I went back on day two, Polly Pavilion, you know, the John Wooden history, all that. He took me right into the coach's locker room and he had my name on a coach's locker in a, on athletic training tape. And in it, he had a full UCLA, which I still have, practice outfit, sweatsuit. And he said, John, I want you to put these on. I think things will go much better. <laughs> That's great. That's, that's forward. I never ever wore ballet or leotards and tights when I worked with athletes. That's that's great. That's absolutely great. Before we wrap up, tell me what uh, moving always always moving means to you. Well, it's, it's it's sort of my byline. You know, I put it everywhere. It just you know you learned in my class about the dualist philosopher Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Well, I, my motto is I move, therefore I think. 
It's just that movement, you know, we're animals. We have to move, keep moving, moving, always, always moving. It was actually shared with me by a secretary I had at Bridgewater State, um, Pam Humphreys. She thought that that would be a good byline for me. So I've, all, I've used it. That's awesome. That's, that's great. I, yeah, I remember just every day in class you would say it and then at the end of every email you have it and it's just, it's a great uh, way to live your life. Just then realizing that we're all, all need to move and we're all human. Um, professor Kilborn, you are a, an amazing professor. Oh. It was, it was an absolute honor to be able to, to have this conversation with you. It was something that, you know, I had always kind of wanted uh, when I was in your class. Uh, but thank you so much. If you need to get in contact with Professor Kilborn, you can find his email on the Grand Valley State University. Um, he's at his home right now, just hanging out. And he said his, his emails, he's always responding to his emails. So if you have a question with whatever it is, even if it was something that you heard on this podcast, definitely reach out to Professor Kilborn. He will help you in the absolute uh, best way that he can, or just point you to someone who has a better answer than he does. Uh, is there anything else you want to say, no, Professor I, Kilborn? I was, when I got the email from Dr. Coles about you, and then, you know, I listened to Alyssa's, I, I was, I'm so proud of you. I mean, oh. you've been, you're doing a great job. So keep thank it you. up. Thank you. Thank you. I, this has been a, a, a tremendous honor to, to be able to do this for Grand Valley. And Professor Coles has given me the, the tools to be able to get in contact with people like you and other students. And yeah, I'm looking forward to see, seeing where this uh, kind of journey goes, whether uh, it's in sports broadcasting or sports podcasting, whatever, whatever the, the, the next route for me is, I'm excited. Wow. Congratulations and enjoy Salt Lake. I will. Thank you, Professor Kilborn. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah.